Revelation chapter 13. John chapter 13. My last several lessons have been here in John chapter 13. We were focusing on John's emphasis in his presentation of the Lord's Supper, as we often refer to it as this Last Supper with um, Christ and his disciples during um, the observance of what Jewish holiday? Passover, yes. So he presents, anybody remember John's theme? What was his main point in presenting the events in the upper room? He left out things, but he also included things that nobody else included because he had one central theme and main emphasis. What was it? Does anybody remember? It was one four-letter word. My sister said it was the theme of mine and Laura's wedding. Love. We were all sitting around the dinner table. Pastor Hubby had come over. My family was in town, and we're all sitting around that big old table at the Bogner's house, and Pastor Hubby was there, and he looks up during dinner. Well, Aaron and Laura, what would y'all say is the theme of, um, of your wedding? Because he was getting ready to do the message at the wedding. And, um my sister had been seated by Pastor Hovey. Mrs. Hovey wasn't there. And she just, with her South Louisiana look, just popped right up at Pastor Hovey. She said, love. <laughs> anyway, to this day, when something is said about a wedding, Laura's like, I bet the theme is love. Anyway, that was the theme of John 13. But in the midst of presenting this and talking about, of course, in verse 1, um, he uses, he ends verse one with the phrase, he loved them unto the end. Jesus washes their, the disciples' feet. He begins teaching them about how, how they needed to love one another. But in the midst of doing this, he sticks in verse 33, where he says, um, <clears throat> little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I say, um, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. And then he goes back to talking about love. Well, John picked up, sorry, rather Peter picked up on what he had said about the fact he was going away. And so Peter asks a question here. In verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas asks the question. In verse 8 of chapter 14, Philip makes a request. And then in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, um, he asks the Lord a question as well. And what I want us to look at this morning, we're just going to do an overview of these verses. And I want us to get four lessons that we can learn from these questions that Jesus was asked. How many of you parents would say you get a lot of questions? Especially the younger your kids are, <coughs> the more questions you get. And Jesus uses these questions very carefully, which I really think that verse 33 um, was a setup 
Jesus was wanting Peter to ask a question. He was wanting them to question this. And you see often in Jesus' teachings that he sticks something in, he gets to the end, and somebody questions it. Well, now what happens? Now we got a whole new lesson to teach. Why? Because somebody asked the right question. And so we're going to look at these four questions. As I said, one of them is actually a, a request. <clears throat> but we're going to look at them and try to get see what we can learn from how Jesus responded, what he did as he responded to these disciples. Now, keep in mind that this is the Last Supper. Keep in mind he's soon to be crucified. This is his final charge. His final instructions have already started as he's told them that they need to love one another. And so as all of this is coming to an end, his earthly ministry is coming to an end. There's a lot of things that are on his heart. There are things he wants to say. There are things he needs to say. And John's about to spend a lot of time going over this. But as he gets into this, notice he doesn't get frustrated with the disciples asking the questions. I mean, sometimes when I'm teaching, I've got I, clearly in my mind what I'm thinking about and what I need to say and what I'm going to say. And it's so hard when somebody raises their hand, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to lose my train of thought. Um, I don't necessarily always think that, but halfway through answering the question, I go, what was I talking about? I don't even know what I was talking about. Um, Jesus doesn't do that. Of course, you know, he was God, but, but yet he was man, and he doesn't get frustrated with them. He doesn't get angry with them. And so let's look here. Four lessons that we can take from Jesus' response as they are finishing things in the upper room. Number one, we see that Jesus used these questions and requests as opportunities to teach timeless truth. I'm going to say that again. He used these questions, these requests, as opportunities to teach <clears throat> timeless truth. Now, we need to ask ourselves, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, and really for any of us, um, you know, there's somebody that's not saved. They ask you a question about Christianity. Do you take the opportunity with that question to teach timeless truth? Look what Jesus did. His response here, uh, verse 36, we have the question, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Notice he doesn't give him a direct answer to start with. He doesn't tell him where he's going. There's some other things he needs to deal with first. And so he just simply says, where I go, you can't follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. So he gives him some hard information, but yet there's comfort with that hard information. You can't go now, but you will come later. Verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But here, Jesus has introduced again this, this fact that he's going away. Verse, look down verses 2 through 4. 
We'll read those in a minute, but he teaches them about heaven. He goes on, verses 6 through 7, to teach them about the exclusiveness of Christ. The exclusiveness. There is only one way to go to heaven. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he lays down this very important doctrine that not all roads lead to heaven, but there is one way. There is one Savior. There is one Lord. There is one truth, one way, one life, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, he goes on to teach them about the unity of the Father and the Son. If you begin reading at verse number 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And here he goes on, and he begins to present to him the unity of the Father and the Son. Later, he begins to present the Trinity. He doesn't call it that, but he begins talking about the Father, and that the Father is sending the Holy Spirit. He begins teaching them about the indwelling Holy Spirit that was going to come and was going to indwell them. And you could go on with the lessons that he taught them as they begin to ask him questions. He begins to lay out truth. As I said, so often we see questions as a distraction. And sometimes they are. And I think that's why sometimes um, Jesus, Jesus would often answer a question with another question. Why? Because Jesus knew there was something far more important than answering the question that's being asked at the moment. Sometimes the question is given to trick him. Sometimes the question just may not be necessary. But rather than scolding them, he turns things around. Rather than scolding them, he points the attention to the place it needs to be pointed. The other day, we had had actually Christmas Eve night, I guess it was. We were at my parents, and um, I had gotten to feeling really bad that night. And so I went and laid down in the dark for a few minutes. I had gotten a really bad headache, and one of the kids came in, and um, I knew they, they laid down beside me. And I knew they had a question, but the question never was coming. You parents know what I'm talking about, and you kids do too, because you've done the same thing probably. I remember doing that with my parents. I just had something I wanted to ask them, but I would do everything but ask the question I wanted to ask. And um, anyway, then I realized Laura had come in the room doing something. I realized when she leaves, they'll feel the freedom to ask. Anyway. Laura left, and it was quite a deep question for a little kid. How was Jesus born of Mary in the first place anyhow? Excuse me? <laughs> what did you just ask? How was Jesus born from Mary in the first place? How do you answer that to a little bitty kid? Well, that's when you start sending up flare prayers. You know, Lord, okay, this is a big question. For a little kid. And we understand that the whole they have the same Holy Spirit, if they're saved, they have the same Holy Spirit indwelling them that we have. 
so the Holy Spirit can teach them the same truth that we can understand. But now it's daddy's job to say it in such a way, you know, use the right English words to where it makes sense to the little mind and heart. So I just went back to the very beginning. Well, you remember in the beginning, it was Jesus that created everything. So first we had to establish the fact that Jesus has always existed. He didn't start existing when he was born in Bethlehem. That's when we finally got to see him, when people on earth could see him, and that's when he made his big entrance. And so anyway, so we went back to the fact that man sinned, and so we needed a savior, and so Jesus came, and um, God did a miracle and put baby Jesus in Mary's tummy. And anyway, so we went through that whole thing. So God was putting on flesh. God needed a body. And so he was born. Anyway, so we went through that whole story. And here I was laying here not feeling well, laying in the dark. I mean, when I go and lay down in the dark, you know I feel bad because I just don't go lay down in the dark. And so I'm laying here and I have this question and I know this is important. This is a teachable moment. Tomorrow is not the moment. Right now is the moment. It's quiet. It's just me and this little one. And I failed that test so many times. But I was really grateful as I was studying this and thinking about this. I don't know what all that conversation did that night. I don't know how it worked in that heart. But we so often have opportunities as parents, as grandparents, um, as friends, as teachers, that we're asked questions, sometimes the most random questions. But if we take the opportunity, we take the time, we can be able to teach timeless truth. So first we see that Jesus used these questions and these requests as opportunities to teach timeless truth. Secondly, we see he used them as opportunity to ask hard questions that would reveal true character. Let me say this again. He used their questions and requests as opportunities to ask hard questions that would reveal true character. So he taught timeless truth and he revealed true character. What am I talking about? Well, Peter said to him, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Are you, why, why are you saying I can't go with you? I'm willing to die for you. And if you remember it, with your knowledge of what has happened already in the Gospel of John, the disciples knew the death sentence was on Jesus. I mean, you remember when Jesus was going up to, um, to Bethany, to Lazarus' funeral? They're on their way, and Thomas said, well, let's just go with him. We'll all die with him. You know, I mean, he was being dramatic, obviously, but they knew Jesus was going to die. And Thomas knew, if I keep following Jesus around, I'm going to end up dead too. And so he was mad about the whole thing, apparently. I would probably be feeling just like Thomas. I don't want to admit that I would be a Thomas, but I have a feeling I would. I probably wouldn't have the nerve to speak up like Peter did, but I would be like Thomas, grumbling on the side, I'm going to die with him. But now Peter doesn't have this attitude. Peter is 
I think, a little arrogant here, a little cocky. How dare Jesus say he can't go with him? He is willing to lay down his life for him. And Jesus turns it around and he answers him with a question. Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Will you really? Verily, verily. In the Greek, this is literally amen, amen. Amen has nothing to do with gender. That is the biggest load of stupidity on the planet. Just about the dumbest thing that's ever been concocted is to say that that has somehow or another has anything to do with gender. And then I heard someone say this week, well, that, that, what stupidity. That is Latin for such and such. Before it was Latin, it was Greek. And guess what? In Hebrew, it was too. Anyway, it just didn't come from the Latin. But anyway, so Jesus says, amen, amen. Verily, verily, he is giving a very strong statement. He is making very sure that Peter understands what I'm about to say is firm. I'm confident in this. It's going to happen. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Jesus has just revealed something that Peter didn't want to know about himself. I think it would be interesting. I've never done this, but I think it would be interesting to study how many find how many times Jesus said verily, verily in the New Testament. You go through, verily, verily, I say unto you, um, except a man be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we know that one. There's been a number of verily, verily. But imagine being Peter. And one of his verily, verily statements is to you that you're going to deny him. So Jesus has taken his questions. Now he's taken his strong statement. And he's asked him a question, are you really going to do this? Do you really think you're going to lay down your life for my sake? And then he takes it down to the very heart of it. This is the fact. This is what's going to happen. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Now, Jesus isn't through here. Praise the Lord. He's not through. He wasn't through with Peter. But I want to stop here and think about it for a moment. As a parent, as a grandparent, as a teacher, as a friend, you can't always just give the nice, sweet, flowery answers. You can't always just offer butter and honey. There are times where we have to ask hard questions. There are times we have to reveal truth. There are times when my kids ask me questions and I have to point out the fact that that was said with the wrong attitude, with the wrong heart. It happened at our house sometime in the last couple of weeks. I said something about, well, that was smart, Alec. It was? And the kid who said it didn't even mean it, smart Alec, apparently. They were quite surprised. Well, why did that? I'm sorry, Dad. And so we had a discussion. Why did that sound smart, Alec? I mean, it sounded smart, Alec. It was like you want to turn around and whack them, you know? It's just like you didn't even realize it was that way. Well, by me asking the question and bringing up the conversation instead of just flying off the handle, well, guess what? It revealed truth. 
well, what was some of the truth? Some of the truth was that they weren't being smart aleck at all. They didn't mean it that way. But in having the conversation, we were able, truth was revealed. Now, what happens other times? You ask the questions, you have the discussion, and you, I mean, it's obvious. You can see on their face, they meant to be smart aleck. But in, by having the right conversation, by dealing with things properly and not just losing our temper, that we can get to the heart of the issue and a hard heart or a smart aleck heart can soften and be able to have that heart turned in the right direction. And Jesus takes this time with his disciple and he asks the hard question and he reveals his true character. You're going to deny me, Peter. This is not an option. This is not a discussion. This is what's good. This is fact. Good is already done. You're going to deny me. You think you're so strong and so tough, but you're not as tough as you think you are. Sometimes we need to have these really serious conversations, but Jesus didn't stop there. He used these questions and requests as opportunities to teach timeless truth. <clears throat> he used them to reveal true character. And then number three, <clears throat> with, with painful revelation, <clears throat> he gave tender comfort. We look at verse 1 here of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. <clears throat> and just about every time <clears throat> that we read this or every time we hear it preached or we hear it read at a funeral, it's always looking at the fact that you and I, through troubled times or facing death or whatever the circumstances, our hearts don't need to be troubled. But let's think about these verses in the context. Peter has just been told, you're going to deny me. Now imagine this, you're going to deny me, but don't let your heart be troubled. I mean, come on, I'd be sick in my stomach. I mean, I'd want to, I, seriously, I would probably be nauseated and wanting to puke if I really believe Jesus. Now, he just told me this, and with the strength of his language here, let not your heart be troubled. Don't fret about this. Don't. I mean, imagine, Jesus is telling you, you're going to deny me, but don't be troubled. Why? He's able to take this thing around and turn it to the heart of the issue. Here's the most important thing. Yes, Peter, you're going to fall. Yes, Peter, you're going to deny me. And yes, Peter, for the next few couple thousand years, people are going to be reading about it over and over and over. And that's what they're often going to think about first when we talk about Peter. Oh, yeah, and all those dramas and, um, you know, passions and plays that they're going to put on every year at Easter. Yeah, you're going to be portrayed. Yeah, that's going to happen. But don't let your heart be troubled. Why? You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is showing him here, I know you're going to doubt. I know you're going to lie. I know you're going to deny me. But I don't doubt your faith. He knows Peter's the real deal. And we're going to see, as we continue studying through John, we're going to see when Jesus starts praying for the disciples, you listen and you wonder, who is he praying for? He's saying things about these guys that is not true. 
And Jesus was. He started saying things about them that wasn't true. But he knew it was going to be true. Because Jesus had trained them and prepared them, and he knew after they went through denial, after they ran away and hid, after they had gone through all these troubles, after they were hiding in the upper room, and after he appeared, and after he had ascended back to the Father, and after the Holy Spirit came, these things would be real. They were going to be true, strong men of faith. They were going to stand for truth. They were going to be unwavering. They would write epistles. They would spread the gospel. They would start churches. They would be persecuted, and every single one of them except for John would be executed for preaching the gospel. Jesus knew this is what these guys are going to be when the Holy Spirit is permanently indwelling them. But right now he tells him, you're going to deny me, but don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. He takes it straight to faith. Believe also in me. Have your faith in me. Don't let your faith be shaken with this denial. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Imagine how comforting this is. You have just been told you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as bold. You're not as tough. And now your big mouth is going to get you in trouble. But don't let your heart be troubled. Have faith. Because I'm going to my father's house and there's many mansions. And don't get distracted there by arguing about what those mansions are going to look like. And whether they're tiny apartments built onto daddy's house or whether they're actually mansions. Okay, focus on the real thing here. The real issue is that Peter was going to deny Jesus, but Jesus was preparing a place for him anyway. This is genuine love. He said that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus desired to have Peter with him in his house. The one who would deny him, he was looking forward to having him in his father's house. And he was going away to prepare this place for him. And verse four, and whither I go, ye know. You already know the answer to this question. And the way, ye know. You know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. You already know the answer to these questions. And that brings me up to the fourth point here. When they should have known the answers, Jesus demonstrated tremendous patience. I think that is an easy thing for me to get irritated at as a dad. When the kid asks a question that you know they already know the answer to. Why are they asking the question? I don't know. As a dad, I will never understand. You know, riding down the road. And somebody reads a sign. What does that mean? Well, what does it say? Stop. Well, then what do you think it means? Stop. That was a stupid question. I mean, that's what I'm tempted to say. And, you know, every once in a while, that may come out of my mouth. Why? Because I want my child to understand. Uh, some teachers say there are no questions or dumb questions. I'm sorry, if you already know the answer to what stop means, that's a dumb question. 
you know, Jesus, what do you mean by this? But I see people do this in church, you know. They'll read this, you know, oh, wow, this verse. What does that really mean? It means? What do you say it means? Like, like, what is this? Yeah, that's what that means. I mean, some of them that are really simple, like, you know, trust in God. What does that really mean? I don't know what that means. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. What does that look like in my life? Like, it looks like you're going to trust God and wait patiently. That's where you are right now. You know, you're in that patience game. You know, what you're tempted to do, what Satan wants you to do is stop and give up and say, I'll never get to Africa. I'm not even going to try. I'm going to go to Guam on vacation. You know, that's what God, that's what Satan wants you to do. And God's saying, no, I just want you to wait patiently. Lord, I'm not, you're not ready for this yet. I'm not saying this, okay? I'm just saying this could be your conversation with God. Why would I be delayed? I've had these questions before. Why would I be delayed? I have something I want to do. I have something that's on my heart. And sometimes it's been six months that God's made me wait. I'm like, God, I know you're telling me to do this. Why am I not getting to do it? Doors slam straight in our face. And God just keeps saying, wait patiently, wait patiently. Wait patiently. When the time is ready, you'll be ready. These things will come to pass. But Jesus had tremendous patience. Look what he says. You already know the way. You already know where I'm going. He's saying, where are you, you know, where are you going? Well, look what Thomas, Philip, sorry, Thomas, I skipped Thomas. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. You just show us the Father and we'll be happy. Look what Jesus says to him. Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? This is a powerful statement here. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now flip over real quick. Keep your finger there in John 14. <clears throat> but Hebrews, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, in the introduction <clears throat> to Hebrews chapter, uh, well, to the book of Hebrews, the author says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now back up to verse three, look at the words and describing Jesus, who he was, <clears throat> he says he was the express image 
of his person. Of whose person? Well, he said here, God, who at sundry times. He was the express image. It's interesting, the word there is character for image. He was the express image. This is not the idea of photocopying something. The actual Greek word has to do with an engraver, literally an engraver's tool, like the, the, the tool you would use. Uh, James bought one last week. What's that thing called, James? Um, what? A chisel. It's that idea of like using a chisel to carve into something. And um, the, he said that Jesus was the express image. It was like the idea of an old Greek coin that would have the picture of the, the I almost said the Pharaoh. Um, Caesar, thank you. Would have the picture of the Caesar stamped onto it. It's the idea of a carving. As I was thinking about this this week, how do you, how do we really understand this concept? How do you see the picture of it? Because it's more than Jesus was just a photocopy. But he was the way that we, that mankind was able to see God. And I thought about it this week. When I write a song, I've just got a melody in my head. But how do, I, how do I get that melody out there for somebody else to see it? I can hum it. I can sing it. I can play it on the piano. But if I want you to really be able to see it and digest it and comprehend it and understand it, I go and I sit down and I write it out or I type it out on my computer program and you have the image of the song that I wrote. Now you can see what I wrote. Because a song is not an object. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't, like, how do you get somebody else to understand that song that's in your head? Well, you print it on the page. That's the idea of this. God is a spirit. Was it Moses had been told? No man's seen God at any time. Well, how are we going to see God? How are we going to really know him in a personal, intimate way? Jesus Christ came. He was born of a virgin. He took on flesh. He became man so that we could know him. And John would be able to write whom we have seen and we have talked with and we have handled. John said, uh, this was years after Jesus had died. John said, I touched him myself. He was real because there were those um, agnostics who were saying that, you know, Jesus was just some kind of weird creature, that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't really God, he wasn't really, just weird, weird stuff that they were claiming. And John's like, no, none of that is true. He was real. I touched him. He was a real body. And that's the idea that Jesus Christ came so that we could see, so that we could communicate with, so that we could know, so that we could understand And so here he is in the midst of Philip and of Thomas having already known the answers. Yet they're still asking the questions. They're still requesting, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. Jesus is like, you've been seeing the Father the whole time. There was this unity between Jesus and the Father. And this is something that really struck me recently 
uh, meditating on these on this passage, I started realizing, you know, uh, people struggle. Christians can struggle so hard sometimes. I want this unity with the Father like Jesus had. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the Father like Jesus knew the Father. Well, unless you're a Mormon and you believe that you will one day become a God, we have to grasp the fact that we will never know the type of unity that these two had because they were one, literally one. Jesus was God in the flesh. And that is the aspect of unity that you and I will never know. I am not God. I have never been God. I never will become God. But Jesus was God. There was this unity. And when you saw Jesus, you saw God all the time, never a time where you didn't see God. Now, I look over here, and I see Mrs. Hewlin. And one day when I'm with Mrs. Hewlin, I may see God. She is walking with God. She's under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a godly woman. But I may see her another day, and she's just a little bit grumpy. Now, I can say this about her because I know she won't be mad. I know it's true of me. Would you, is it true of you? There are some days that you see God when you look at me, I hope. But there are some days where I know it ain't God you're seeing. Why? Because my unity with the Father has to do with how much I'm walking with him, how much I'm in his word, whether I'm walking in obedience to him or not. But the unity of Jesus Christ was inseparable from the Father because they were one. Now, we're not going to take the time. Our time's up. Next time we're together, I will um, continue from here. But we see this unity, and as I was talking with Laura about this last weekend, Laura made a comment. She said, that's so freeing. Because sometimes we as Christians struggle so hard because Jesus and the Father, they were in such perfect unity. I need this unity. Now, we start finding out here soon that there was a reason. Jesus was about to explain to them that there was a way that they could be one with the Father and one with him. But yet Jesus is showing them here and now. You should have understood from the very beginning. I and the Father are one. So these questions that Jesus got, what were the four lessons? Number one, he taught, he used them as opportunities to teach timeless truth. Number two, to reveal true character. Number three, to give tender comfort. And number four, to demonstrate tremendous patience. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had to study your word today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be more like you. Lord, that you would help us to abide in you and to walk with you. And Lord, that we would be able to be like you and that when people in the world see us, when other Christians see us, that they would see you. But Lord, I pray that as we, um, Lord, have interaction with others, Lord, that we would have your patience and we would have your wisdom. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and, Lord, instruct us that we would be able to answer other people's questions and requests in such a way to reveal your truth. And, Lord, to demonstrate the patience that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. 
Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us today and that you would just um, be honored and glorified in our services. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.